namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddham dhammam sangam namasami We've been together now for four days, a little bit more than four days, in this very beautiful retreat center. And each of us comes with our own bundle of work that we have to do. It's the work of the heart. And it's a skill that we learn, like any craft. We learn this skill. And we have to face a lot of truth within ourselves that we may have been shielding ourselves from in the many ways that beings do hide from the truth that they so fear. But what is it we really fear the most? What can we name that we really fear the most? Anyone else? Yes. Disappointing those I love. Disappointing those I love. Yeah. So I'd like to talk to you about fear because I do believe that what we fear the most is love. If we were able to love unconditionally, that would be a love that had no self-thought in it. And these other fears they do have a self-thought, except perhaps the fear of it being too late, but it's never too late to wake up, even if we wake up while we're dying, which is a wonderful opportunity. Recently I watched a documentary about a Tibetan nun. When she was a young woman, she was betrothed to a very rich person in her village in Tibet. And she was so resistant to marriage, she ran away and escaped under duress and lived in the wilderness and ended up in a village where she took up residence in a hut after some years. And she's been living in that hut for 45 years and devoted herself to practice. It so happened that a famous French monk named Mathieu Ricard, he and a journalist made a visit to this nun. And it was the first time that she had agreed to have contact. So they show them coming up to the hut and they knock on this wooden shutter. It opens and this wizened face of an old slightly toothless, smiling nun, peers out the opening of this wooden shutter and greets them. And they offer the white cloth in the Tibetan tradition, exchanging blessings. And then Manchu Rikard is translating and he's asking her about her story. And she tells her story. Yes, she's been in this hut dependent on the food provided by the villagers for 45 years. 
she pays respects to him as a monk, and she says, all this monastic stuff is very well and good, but she has her own practice, and he asks her, what is your practice? And she says, she chants, Om Mani Pemi Hum, may all beings be free from suffering. That's her practice. One line, 45 years of chanting for the well-being of others. That's her life. And she looks out towards the camera, and I see into her eyes this penetrating, overpowering peace and joy. It just went through my heart like an arrow. I had to turn away, actually. It was so powerful. And this is on a screen of a computer. I'm not looking at her in real life. But somehow, the video of her was able to transmit the power of her mind. And then there were many thank yous and bows with folded palms. And he hoped that they would meet again. And she said, someday, I will visit you by the power of my mind, and we can have a cup of tea. And then she closed the shutter. That was it. So I reflect about this wonderful being that is there on that hillside, somewhere in Tibet, in her small hut. And I reflect on my life. I live in a very comfortable monastery, so I, I reflect on the blessings of my life, but I still yearn for the simplicity that this nun exhibited through her little hut and through her, her one practice of just wishing well-being for other beings. So I started on that very day to just do that. I thought, if I can just do that all the time, how pure my mind would be. Many people do this practice of continually radiating metta to others. But before we can actually radiate metta to others, we have to have developed a lot of metta for ourselves. And so I realized that, because I've not gone beyond fear, that I don't have unconditional love in my heart yet. I'm working on it. But it takes a lifetime or it takes lifetimes. The biggest obstacle for me is fear. And I grew up with a lot of fear coming from parents who survived the genocide in World War II and who lived through so much fear. And I just picked that up as well and lived in incredible fear as a young child and later as a teenager, fear of being pointed out as the enemy and then executed for that. And this still goes on. There are so many countries and beings on this planet who have to deal with those kind of conditions. I found through the years that I was not really dealing with that fear, but masquerading, trying to be normal, whatever that means, and fit in so that I would feel that I didn't have fear. 
but what I didn't realize I had was fear of fear. And then my spiritual path began when I was starting to meditate around 20 years old, and I went to India and, and met a master. And then I really became earnest in spiritual practice. And becoming a nun some years later, I'm wearing this uniform, walking around with a shaved head that makes me the object of other people's fear. So, strangely enough, this has been for me a vehicle to work through or to face what I fear the most. Unconditional love summons us to be at peace with whatever conditions we face. Because unconditional love totally receives and accepts and is able to go beyond our personal condition to wish others well-being. But until and unless we have fully embodied unconditional love, how can we bring that total safety and commitment to trust to other beings? So I'm seeing now why the meeting of this nun was so profound for me because it just reignited a wish to overcome that fearfulness more and more. Here I am in a situation where living as a nun, two and a half millennia after the Buddha, the Buddha stood up for women. He raised women up from being on the same level as cattle to being held with reverence as beings who could achieve total enlightenment. And so in our time, I was fortunate enough to take full ordination. But when I first became a nun in Burma 30 years ago, my teacher, I asked permission to take full ordination, and he very blithely said, not possible. I couldn't understand. I saw monks taking full ordination, and I thought, what's wrong with me? That was just our particular tradition and lineage didn't allow that. And so I accepted the next best thing, which was being an alms mendicant on ten precepts, being dependent on other people for my requisites, and being totally vulnerable. Now, for somebody with a lot of fear, being totally vulnerable is, again, a huge test. So there were times when I was quite insecure in the way that I received requisites. At first, I lived in a big community, and in the large community, we had a lot of security. But the large community was dominated by the monks and run by the monks. And the women had 10 precept ordination, but could never take full ordination. So I spent 10 years in that community, and we ended up having a lot of tension between us as women because we were on the fringe of of all the benefits. And of course we thought, well, this is good enough, we have the practice. But to sit in the line and watch the monks year after year getting full ordination and then knowing that we could never do that, 
it's an opportunity that is not equally portioned out. And in normal society, that would be considered somehow unbalanced. But within the community, it was always normalized. And it never felt right, so I ended up leaving, wishing that someday I could take full ordination. And when I did, it was such a glorious moment. But after I received full ordination, I hesitated to tell anyone because I thought it would be criticized. And one of the monks told me that I couldn't be a closet bhikkhuni. I had to come out. He said, coming out, you have to tell people. And so when I told my colleagues in the monastery, I was just deleted from the list. It was never spoken about. And this was hard for me, just like the fear that I had experienced as a kid growing up, second best to a very brilliant brother, and then always second best in the monastery. Not that best is meaningless, really, but this is how we grow up with egos and we, we compare ourselves to each other. It really is about being afraid that we're not good enough somehow. And when we feel not good enough, it's very difficult to have that unconditional love because we're taught not to love ourselves as we could. We, we always feel somehow, take a back seat and just say, everything is fine, no problem, it's all good. Suppress, deny, don't acknowledge, don't articulate, don't make a peep because you could be struck down or you could be the object of criticism and blame because you're making a problem. What's the problem here? You have an ordination, you have food, you have everything that you need. When I lived alone, I'd go to market, and stand in the market and be given food, and a few women were kindly feeding me, and I would be invited to a dana in a monastery, and once I came for a woman's memorial for her mother, and the monk, who was the abbot, was standing at the gate. I was a nun with shaven head, in robes, on the street. And he was the abbot, and he was standing outside his own temple. I was about to enter, and he said, Female! Just like that. And I felt such fear and shock, like there's something so wrong with this. And of course, I'd had that handed down from family trauma as well. So I was just imploding. But I thought, I can't not go in the temple because this is the donna for this devotee, for her mother. I must go in. So I went in and he sat down in his abbot's chair and I went up to him because my duty as a nun in the training is that we always bow to the monks. The Buddha created the monk's order first and the nun's order afterwards. And so, as a convention, this monastic system depends for its existence on the monks. And that's just how the world runs. Let's face it, ladies. But it's not an obstacle. It's a condition. It's a karmic predicament. So we must be careful not to pick it up as my problem or as a self. So I used the convention to do the right thing, to bring peace 
I kneeled in front of him and I bowed three times and I tried my best to bring up loving kindness. I don't know what he was thinking, but I looked at the robe and what I thought was this monk wanted to purify his heart. So I was bowing to the robe. It wasn't a personal thing. It's not like I approve of your behavior, but I love your aspiration. That's as much love as I could possibly bring up at that moment. And then he pointed and motioned me to go sit with the laywomen. So I did. Spread my sitting cloth, sat down with the laywomen. Do you know what they did? They took my sitting cloth and put it right next to where the monks were sitting. And so then I had the courage, because by myself I would never have done that. And I sat there, and then I joined in for the chanting. I'll never forget that because it made me realize that there's two ways to hold this whole conundrum of fear. One of them is very personal, me and you and that whole saga, which can bring up a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, and it never ends because the Buddha does say hatred can never cease through hatred but through love alone. And the same is true of fear. But because I was able to find some quality about this person, I could bring up some love in my heart. And I thought, if I can do that little bit, that's been a reminder for me of how the path is. This world is like this. This world is full of dukkha, and it's full of the ending of dukkha. It's full of things being right and things being terribly wrong. There are little arahants sitting behind the door, um, shining in all directions, and there are terrorists running left and right, shooting people at random. There are monks who, who belittle nuns and betray us for following this sublime path of practice, and there are monks who bend over backwards to support us. This is the world. There are so many opposites. So if, if we're working with fear within the heart, we have to remember that the disarmament isn't in the world. The world will always have arms and weapons of peace or instruments of peace. It will have people who are violent and incredibly cruel and people who would give their lives for you. I think about my parents, they would give their, their skin for me. They had so much love. They lived through the most cruel conditions a human being could witness, and they never gave up on love. There's nothing that we can do except continue to give up our fear of those difficult conditions and turn our minds to the possibility of there being one quality in that person or that situation that will raise up the loving-kindness there in our hearts, the forgiveness, if not an actual roaring, harmonious feeling of great ease and peace, but at least a heart that will forgive and put down the ill will and give that other person the credit for any effort that they may be making in life whatever it might be. Even to show up in a monastery is a big deal.
and also to practice compassion because no one creates suffering for another person without being very ignorant and full of dukkha themselves, full of fear. When you trust in the present moment and you trust the virtue in your heart and you trust your ability to face your own fear, then it doesn't matter how much you're shaking. It reminds me of a time when I was in the big community and we were on retreat as a group, all the nuns sitting in one area, monks in another, and I was asked to give the invitation to the devas. So the invitation to the devas means that you, you chant this wonderful chant, Paritva Nametang Samitabhadanta. The senior monk was, usually they would ask one of the nuns, it was the first time I was ever asked. And I was quite new in the community, and I was so terrified to chant this. So I was chanting it like, <laughs> it was really horrible. And the nuns were just right there with me. Come on, you can do it. I could feel their energy, their love, their compassion. I was so trembly. And at the end, the monk looked at me and he said, I'll never ask you again. <laughs> if somebody says that, one has to really have compassion because... Those of us who are in the same boat, walking in each other's footsteps, could know what that feels like, to get up in front of a group of senior people and people of authority, and you're the, the marginalized, the wing of the whole operation, and you're so full of fear. Well, of course you're full of fear. That's how the conditions are. There's no need to blame, and there's no blame. And of course, I didn't see that. For years thereafter, I carried that around with me like I'm not good enough. And it's still there, because that's the ego talking. But if I can get past that bit and go to the pure love behind it, unconditional love, that's the opposite of fear. That's what we fear the most. But that is the antidote to fear. And so we have to keep returning to that possibility and have compassion for ourselves, and get up and do the best we can. Bringing forth the best we can is where the healing begins. And acknowledging the struggle is where the fear ends. That's where the love begins, and that's where the fear ends. So, if you feel like you're battling with the hindrances, come on, friends, Brothers, sisters, yes, the hindrances are huge. It's like an ocean. But there is an ocean of love that is even bigger. And we're in an ocean of unconditional love, a field of unconditional love. But it looks like we're in an ocean of fear. That's our mental perception. And we have to just break through that because that's self-talk, old conditioning talk karmic talk that we have to sweep away, we have to break it up, dilute it, diffuse it, purify it, dissolve it. Eventually, little by little, breath by breath, we'll free ourselves from it, and then it might rear its head up in a different way. But that doesn't mean that we haven't done any work, or that we're worthless.
just by our very willingness to face this fear and to sit here in this hall hour after hour after hour with these conditions of renunciation, not following our heart's delight. We are already so fearless. But we're facing a huge mountain of this stuff. But it's of our own making. It doesn't exist the moment we turn our hearts towards that which is true, that which is bright, that which is radiant, and that which we can bless ourselves with. It takes one thought of kindness, one moment of kindness. I like to remember this. My father once told me, he's my hero. It was very difficult for him going through the war, and when he was repatriated from Russia back to Europe, he ended up being given an apartment in Germany. And this apartment had belonged to ex-soldiers who had gone to war and never returned. He was looking for work, and he'd be walking in the streets, and there would be the widows of soldiers sitting in the streets, and the widows of people who had murdered everyone in his family, almost, sitting there in the street begging, hungry. He had no work. Whatever food he would get, he would share it with them. That was him. He would show them his love and his compassion. So I remember that. I remember this is my inheritance. It's to face the people that you think are trying to kill you or have wronged you in some way or have not wronged you, but they remind you of somebody that wronged you. We have to put down our fear and come to the present moment and offer them what we can offer them, the best thing we can think of at the moment, some food, a bouquet of flowers, a smile, a kind word, even silence, if we can't say anything, but not bring up anger, not allow hostility to escape. So that's why, as nuns, as human beings who take the renunciant path, we give up protesting. I don't march in the streets and protest against bad governments and things like that. But this very path for me is the biggest protest I can make because I'm trying to disarm myself. I'm trying to reduce the amount of greed, hatred, and delusion in this world, here in this little heart, so that this heart can be so big it can hold the whole world in it with all its armaments and then try to disarm wherever I can around me. That's the most that each of us can do. Some of us will have more power to do that, to radiate that energy farther afield. And some of us can only touch one person. But I I made a vow to myself when I started this monastery. Many kinds of work didn't seem to help me with my practice, but actually they do because it's about staying with the Course, staying with things, how difficult they are. I resolve that if I can help one person, one person, then my life will have had meaning. In the process, first I have to remember to help myself and stay on the path of bringing up peace in my own heart, peace with the kilesas, peace with the hindrances, 
They are only the creations of my own mind. They are my karmic predicament, and they are my teachers. The more I can stare fear in the face and disarm it right then and there, and sometimes there's a sutta about it, when the kilesa, the hindrance, is so strong that all you can do is grit your teeth and bite your tongue, but you won't speak an unkind word, then do that. Do that not to break the precept, to sustain the purity at least of conduct and speech, not to leak our bad moods out anywhere. We easily do that. We easily leak out in ways that we don't realize. And so this is a process of learning how not to do that by seeing how much chaos and confusion there is within us. That's an incredible teaching. Just to digest that is a huge meal. And then from there, we keep working. The path does work. Om Mani Pemi Hum. May all beings be free from suffering. This is the remembering great compassion as our blood flows, as our words come out, as our eyes see, as our ears hear, as we smell, taste, touch other beings, ourselves, our hearts, touch other beings. May we have great compassion in the footsteps of that wonderful nun. Back in the day when I tried to do that chant, I couldn't have given a public talk. I don't know what I said, but I speak from my heart. And then it gets recorded, (laughs) which has always been more frightening. But it's because it was asked of me. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 